Well, this evening we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 through chapter 2, verse 3. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the reading of God's word. Well, love is attractive. When you see the life of those who, who, whose lives are characterized by love, you can see the joy that they experience. And while it's certainly true that you do find those who get a charge out of hostility instead, yet when you see them, you can tell that there's no genuine happiness there. Now, we all know that we're supposed to live a life characterized by love, but what does that look like? How do we put that into practice? Well, I've always appreciated the portrayal of love that you see in the Harry Potter novels. There is a quote there that says, There is a room in the Department of Mysteries that is kept locked at all times. It contains a force that is at once more wonderful and more terrible than death, than human intelligence, than the forces of nature. It is also perhaps the most mysterious of the many subjects for study that reside there. Well, in this series, love is a tremendous force for good, but not one that can be harnessed by any human technique. Nowhere is this seen more clearly than in the results of the so-called love potion, which can never induce true love, but only infatuation, a desire that never matures into actual love and friendship. It's a potion that leads the imbiber to abandon the one who gave it to them when the dose wears off. Yet, did you notice something? In this story, it says that love is the most mysterious of the subjects of study. In this story, there's no telling where love comes from. It simply is and does. There's no real explanation how to have it, no explanation why some love and some don't. But in the real world, we know that there's something bigger and deeper behind love, something that can be understood and can be grasped. And so we ask the question again, where does love come from? Where Peter, well, Peter's audience knew a lot about how hard it could be to love one another. They were suffering under heavy trials. And I don't think any of us are under any illusion that when you're struggling, when your community is struggling, it's hard to love. When provoked, when under tension, it's easy to keep up your social climbing, to throw one another under the bus, to treat love as a transactional thing. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. 
But is that love? No, it's not. And so the question, where do we find love? Where does it come from? Well, it's not within ourselves. We don't even find it in the portrayals of even really good literature and movies and music. We don't find good answers there. But tonight's passage has an answer. God and his word are the source of love, which we then pour out to one another. Within the society of the church, God's love is poured out through us as his vessels to care for one another. And Peter, here in these few verses, describes this life with two commands. First, we see in verses 22 through 25, there is simply the command to love one another. And second, in verses 1 through 3, this command to crave pure spiritual milk linked to the command to love. And so first we turn to this command in verse 22 to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And so we're first going to look at what it, this love looks like in practice, how Peter describes it, and then we'll look at the two sources of this love. For Peter describes the practice of love in four ways, which uh, will take a little bit out of order, but these are that love is brotherly, sincere, earnest, and pure. Now first, love is brotherly. We in the church are a family. A family was worth a lot in the ancient Roman context. Your family cared for you. Your family played a big part of why you lived honorably, so that honor would accrue to your family. And yet, some of Peter's audience would have been probably kicked out of their family on account of their faith in Christ. And yet, faith in Christ incorporates us into a new family, the family of God. And so love is practiced in a family relationship that we each have here in the church. Love is also sincere. For we love one another without pretense. In, in Christian love, you look out for one another's best interest and even show a willingness to give up your own interests. We read in Ephesians 5 how love means submitting to one another. You don't demand that other people in the church toe the lines that you set, but we seek to care for one another and to give up some of this for one another. 1 Corinthians 6 suggests that we even should patiently put up with a certain level of wrongdoing. Now, this doesn't mean that we put up with abuse or with serious sins, but to a certain extent, we should be able to let things go. And I don't mean let it go while you grumble and complain and have a dark cloud over your head, but actually to let things go. Christian love is earnest or constant. Christian love perseveres. You don't stop loving someone because they get on your nerves or because it's inconvenient to do so. You love no matter what the cost is. Even when, when showing love to somebody is an embarrassment to you or gets in the way of your ambitions or costs you some of your social capital, love is constant. And Christian love is pure, flowing from a pure heart. It's unadulterated. It's not subject to corrupting influences. It's a love that is motivated by the good of your brothers and sisters 
not some other benefit that you get. So we, again, we see here how love is brotherly, sincere, earnest, and persevering, and pure. But is this kind of love in your heart? I know that it, by nature it's not in mine. So how is it that we are able to put this into practice? It's not easy. It's not by a strength that comes from within us. But Peter doesn't say, just love one another and then leave it at that. He teaches where the power to love comes from. And we find it here in verse 22, that it comes from a soul purified by obedience to the truth. And in verses 23 through 25, that this power to love comes from the new birth that we have from the word of God. Well, first, a purified soul. It says here that your souls are purified by obedience to the truth. Now, obedience to the truth, in this case, is actually simply believing in the gospel. For the truth in the New Testament frequently refers to the message of the gospel itself. And obedience to the gospel is obedience to the call to have faith in Christ. Now, the Greek concepts of hearing, or in in the Greek word, the concepts of hearing and obedience are both represented in a single word, which is translated here, obedience. You have heard the gospel. In this sermon, you are hearing the gospel. But does the gospel go in one ear and out the other? Or does it sink into your mind and your heart and change you and give you the pure heart that is able to love? For when you believe the truth of the gospel, God purifies you of your sin, of all that corrupts you, of all that leads you away from him. And God begins the process of making you holy. This is what gives you the ability to have this brotherly love. And so here we see that love and truth are not ideals in competition with each other as we so often think of it. But rather, love and truth come together in the work of God in each one of us. Now, God alone can purify your soul by his word in the gospel, and so listen to it and tune out other messages that claim to do you good for everything that will do you spiritual good, that will grow you up in faith will ultimately be found in the message of the gospel. And so we see that we are motivated and empowered for brotherly love by having our souls purified by this obedience to the truth. But Peter adds a second motivation and empowering factor in verses 23 through 25. For you are motivated and empowered to pour out brotherly love by being born again by an imperishable seed. Now, being born of God gives you a new nature, just as natural birth gave you the nature that you were born with. Your physical birth made you a child of your parents, and it set the course of your life. But spiritual birth makes you a son or daughter of God and charts a new course for your life. New birth turns you from someone unable and unwilling to love into someone who is able and willing and eager to love as God himself loves, because he is giving you a new nature. 
Now the seed that gives you this new birth is the living and abiding word of God. Peter quotes Isaiah chapter 40, comparing God's word to human life. All of us, all of our ideas, everything we hold dear is so limited in scope and in time, for our lifespan is short. You know how the flowers bloom and wilt. You live in the Willamette Valley. You know how the grass grows up, scatters its pollen, makes your eyes itch and your nose sneeze, and then goes to seed and wilts again. Human life is just like this, for human life doesn't last. Plants don't last. Nothing lasts. But God's word lasts. Peter is quoting Isaiah 40 for a reason. For in this chapter, God is promising his people that he will redeem them. And he's making these promises to a people who live in exile. Well, it's no wonder that Peter reads these words and sees how they apply to the elect exiles in Asia. You too are in exile for God, living on this earth while longing to be in his heavenly kingdom. But God has made a promise. God has promised his living word, a word that, that remains forever, that abides with you, and is always going to be there to work in your heart. And yet this is a word that is only for exiles. It's a word for exiles to whom God promises to bring you home. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. The good news that your status with God as one of his exiles is not based on anything you can do or will do. You don't need to worry about your status with God because your status, your new birth, your membership in God's family has been secured by the death and resurrection of Christ. He's done it all. And by faith, he has applied it to you and given you this new birth in the gospel. So by this new birth and by the purification of your souls, God gives you the power and the desire to love your brothers and sisters in God's family, in the church. Well, after Peter gives the command to love one another in verse 22, he gives another command in chapter 2, verse 2. The command to long for pure spiritual milk. But even this command is linked to the command to love one another, as we're about to see. But first, look at what this pure spiritual milk is. Now, the Greek word that stands behind spiritual here is logikon. It's a word that is more frequently translated something like logical or reasonable. Well, Karen Jobes, I think, really wrote powerfully about this, that Peter is saying that this milk is everything that is true or reasonable for new life in Christ. So you see how the ESV gets to spiritual from that. For the milk is everything that nourishes us in spiritual life. Now Peter also describes this milk as pure, unadulterated. There's nothing in this spiritual milk that will harm you, and only that which will do you good. It will not fail to nourish you. As God says in Isaiah 55, that his word accomplishes the purpose for which he sent it. But is this milk 
that Peter talks about? Is it only referring to the Word of God? No. Peter's pure spiritual milk is everything that nourishes you in your walk with Christ. Everything that feeds you in faith. Now, it's true. God's Word is is the most significant source of nourishing for your life uh, in Christ. But there's more to it than just hearing the word, for all the means of grace are included. Attending to the sacraments, faithfulness in prayer, these things also feed you spiritually. A life of faithfulness to God feeds us. As we learn to love being holy as he is holy, as walking with God brings us pleasure and joy and we gain strength in walking with him by his Holy Spirit. So pure spiritual milk is a metaphor that incorporates everything that gives spiritual life. And so the command here that Peter gives is to crave it. I don't know, well, I, I do know actually that many of you have encountered a hungry baby. I can tell you from experience, I don't need to tell you that there is one thing that will satisfy a hungry baby. You can give the baby a set of keys. You can give the baby a screen to distract himself with. You can shush the baby as much as you want. But when that baby's hungry, that baby wants one thing. That baby wants milk. And when that baby gets milk, he or she drinks it down greedily. I remember feeding my niece. I mean, it was... Uh, a sight to behold. I never knew that such a small being could ingest so much liquid at once. That baby is greedy for it. In fact, this word, the Greek word that says says crave uh, pure spiritual milk, sorry, long for pure spiritual milk, it's the same Greek word that is often translated lust. Lust for pure spiritual milk. Well, elsewhere in scriptures, we see references to spiritual milk as elementary doctrines only for those who are immature in faith. But that's not the way that Peter is using this metaphor here. For Peter is describing the experience of pursuing spiritual nourishment. So crave the pure spiritual milk. Now at this point, I actually wish that I could preach to you the next two sections of this sermon simultaneously because I couldn't see which one was more important to go next. Now we've just covered verse 2. Verses 1 and 3 discuss different things, but they both are so closely connected to verse 2. I want to speak about them both at once, but I'll spare you. Verses 1 through 3 comprise one sentence in the original Greek. The main thought here is in verse 2. But let's go ahead and look next at verse 1. For Peter is giving important background for this command to long for pure spiritual milk. Here Peter is teaching that a critical way that we live out our longing for pure spiritual milk is to put aside all kinds of antisocial attitudes and behaviors that we might express in the community of the saints. And so Christian community is a part of our spiritual milk. It's the part that Peter draws attention to here. Christian community is so critical to growing us up into Christian maturity. And so Peter is teaching us how to put this Christian uh, uh, community into practice. Put away malice. 
Don't hope for evil to happen to each other. Don't do evil to one another. Don't do things to hurt each other. Have goodwill for one another and do good for each other every time that you have opportunity. Do not be deceitful. Don't lie. Don't do things that are injurious to the truth. Don't play word games in the hope that people will think you mean something that isn't true, but really it's not exactly what you said. Be honest with each other. Be plain spoken. If you have something to say, say it and say it clearly. Put away hypocrisy. In hypocrisy, you put on an outward show of having good things in your heart when you have evil things in your heart in reality. And so work and pray toward a changed heart so that you have genuine love inside as you express genuine love outside. Be sincere in your love. Do not envy. Don't be upset when good things happen to your brothers and sisters. Don't wish that you had good things instead of your brothers and sisters. Instead, be thankful for the ways that God blesses them and seek yourself to be a blessing to one another. And don't slander. Don't say or insinuate evil things about one another behind their backs. Don't gossip about each other. Don't complain about each other. Instead, speak well of one another and tell people how much you appreciate them and encourage them in doing good. As I mentioned, there's a lot that goes into the pure, enjoying the pure spiritual milk that God feeds us. Here in verse 1, Peter is just emphasizing one aspect of that spiritual milk, the healthy and loving relationships that we have in the family of God. But let's go now to verse 3. For Peter commands us to crave the pure spiritual milk, but how do we come to crave it? Well, you might say it's an acquired taste. For you must taste that the Lord is good. Now, Peter puts verse 3 in an unusual form. He says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter isn't expressing here any doubt that you would taste that the Lord is good, but he's not taking it for granted. Thomas Schreiner had a great observation. He says that by phrasing it this way, Peter is inviting the reader to consider whether you can affirm from experience that God is good, but he expresses no doubt that you'll be able to affirm that God is good. Now, Peter is quoting from Psalm 34. And here are a few other verses from that psalm. Verse 4, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Verse 6, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Verse 10, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. Verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. What does it mean to taste that the Lord is good? It is to cry out to him and find that he delivers you from your troubles. But most especially, it is to cry out to him for your sins and find that Christ delivers you from them. Sin distorts all that we think is good. Sin causes us to love ourselves more than our neighbors so that we destroy rather than build up the kind of community Peter writes about. But in Christ, we see love perfectly exemplified. 
as he died even for enemies like you and me. But when we trust him by faith, we experience his love for sinners, for natural enemies like you and me. When we trust him by faith, we experience that God loves people who would do him harm. But instead of fighting you, instead of cursing you, he gave up his life for you. And in doing so, he changed you. He gives you a taste of life in him. And by that taste, he teaches you to crave, to crave it more and more. So if you have tasted that the Lord is good, what a craving, what a lust for pure spiritual milk that taste brings. And with it, he gives his love, love that we then pour out on our brothers and sisters in the church. And so we see how Christian love comes from God's word, from the imperishable seed of faith, from the gospel message that makes us long for spiritual milk and the life that pleases him. When I think of this sort of love, I'm reminded of another story, a tale of two cities. Now, Sidney Carton is a very intelligent lawyer, but he is depressed and a hard-drinking cynic, incredibly gifted, and yet having no ability to put his gifts to good use. And yet he falls in love with young Lucy Manette. Now, when she does not love him in return, he still makes her a promise. He promises to her that he will embrace any sacrifice for you and for those dear to you. Well, Lucy eventually marries Charles Darnay, who is a good man, but he was an aristocrat. And so in France, he was sentenced to the guillotine, not for anything he had done, for he had done nothing but good his whole life. But he was an aristocrat, and so to the guillotine he had to go. And yet there's an uncanny resemblance between Charles Darnay and Sidney Carton. And so Carton arranges one last good act. He trades places with Charles Darnay. And as he goes to the guillotine, he says those famous words, it is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. Well, Dickens doesn't portray Carton as a believer, and in any case, he's a fictional character. But all good stories imitate the greatest story in one way or another, don't they? Christ died in your place out of love for you. And he died to make you, all of you, into a family. And that family is the church. And as he gives you new birth into this new family, he calls you. And he empowers you to pour out his love to your brothers and sisters. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you have given us this new birth into a new family. We pray that you would be with us, that your Holy Spirit would be in our hearts to pour out your love into our hearts and that we would pour it out for one another just as Christ poured it out for us. In his name we pray. Amen.